As a clinical endocrinologist, are you curious about how recent research may impact your clinical practice? Do you struggle to dissect recent publications or connect the literature to patient care? My name is Chase Hendrickson, and I host Endocrine Feedback Loop, a monthly journal club podcast focused on reviewing recent articles published in the Society's clinical journals. Each month, I am joined by an endocrine educator and a guest expert to perform an in-depth analysis of an important article and to understand how it advances the field and informs our clinical practice. This podcast is an Endocrine Society members-only benefit and can be accessed under the journals header on endocrine.org. Find out more about the podcast and becoming a member there. I think you'll benefit from our discussions and hope you'll join us as we learn together as a part of Endocrine Feedback Loop. Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and welcome to the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're talking about hypoglycemia, and if that's something you're interested in, you might be interested in our latest giveaway item, a very fancy insulin pin. I love these hormone pins, and you will too. If you want one, all you have to do is listen to this episode, and then let us know what you think about it by taking a quick survey. That's it. The link to the survey is in the description of this podcast episode on endocrine.org slash podcast. Also, we're excited to have this episode sponsored by an unrestricted educational grant from Lilly. Now, on with the show. Today we're going to be talking about hypoglycemia with the faculty of the Endo Online 2020 session entitled Severe Hypoglycemia, the Frequently Forgotten Threat. It's certainly a compelling session title and I'm looking forward to digging into it. Joining me is the session faculty, Dr. Elizabeth Sequist, the Pennock Family Chair in Diabetes Research and Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And we have a returning guest to the podcast, Dr. Cecilia Lo Wong, Professor of Medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus and Director of the Glucose Management Team at the University of Colorado Hospital. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be here. So today we're talking about hypoglycemia. How do you define hypoglycemia and what can cause this condition? Well, I'll go ahead and take that first because I've spent quite a bit of time with a committee in the International Hypoglycemia Study Group trying to answer that question uh, because hypoglycemia is a lower sugar than normal. But the challenge is so many, many people can have what's normal for one person may not be normal for another. I think it's important to recognize that we are talking about hypoglycemia in patients with diabetes who are treated with insulin or drugs that lower their blood sugar. In that circumstance, the committee and then the American Diabetes Association, the Endocrine Society, and many diabetes-related organizations around the world have approved the level of less than 70 as an alert value. That can be a normal blood sugar, but if a patient on medication that can lower their blood sugar gets a value of 70 or less, that's alert. They should pay attention, probably treat it, and it might change therapy if it continues to go on. It's really values below a 54 milligrams per deciliter that are associated with the risks of hypoglycemia. People who have sugars that are below 54 
several times in a short period of time can develop impaired awareness of hypoglycemia, and they seem to be the patients who are at risk for mortality in the long term from hypoglycemia. I just wanted to mention that there are many different things that can cause hypoglycemia. So as Dr. Sequist mentioned, of course, insulin therapy and drugs that lower glucose can cause hypoglycemia, but there are also different situations during daily life that can increase your risk of hypoglycemia. So for example, if you take a medicine and you skip a meal, or if you're doing more of certain kinds of activities than usual, or if your dose of insulin is titrated higher than you really need, or doses of medications are higher than you need for that day's situation. All of those things can increase your risk of hypoglycemia. I think that's such a good point, Cecilia, because as clinicians, we are constantly trying to help our patients figure out how to best adjust their medicines for the food and the activity that they do. But they need to do that continuously with medications to avoid hypoglycemia which is why this is such a big problem for patients with diabetes who take drugs to lower their blood sugars. When I hear your session title about being a frequently forgotten threat, I feel like I'm being led to ask what exactly is the threat that we're talking about? What are the risks of hypoglycemia? People don't feel good when their blood sugars are low. That's certainly one thing. People, if their blood sugars get down below usually mid-60s or lower, they develop sweating and their heart races in their chest and they feel panicky and they want to eat. And if it keeps falling, they can become unconscious, they can have a seizure, they can die. All of those things can happen during an episode of hypoglycemia. We also know, particularly in older patients, if they have an episode of severe hypoglycemia, which by definition is needing someone else to help you, an episode of hypoglycemia where you need someone else to treat it, their risk for heart disease and mortality in the next year is higher than a similar patient who didn't have severe hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia has potentially severe effects on the brain, both acutely and long-term. And what I remind people that I'm teaching about with hypoglycemia is that our brains can't make glucose and can't really store glucose. And so it really relies on serum glucose to be within the normal range in order to be able to function properly. So when you have an episode of hypoglycemia, you're putting your brain function at risk. Given that the threat can be so severe, why do we have the word forgotten there in the title? How could it possibly be forgotten? I think what's fascinating is that we give people these medications because that's the way to treat their diabetes. People with type 1 diabetes will die if they don't take their insulin. And we've known ever since insulin became available in the 1920s that its main side effect is hypoglycemia. Usually that's mild and patients learn to live with it and it's not a big problem and they just go about their business. So they don't report it to their doctors that it's happening. That's one reason why it's forgotten. The other issue that I think it's important is that people forget that a fear of hypoglycemia can be the reason why people won't control their blood sugars. If you have one episode of hypoglycemia where you are severe, need someone else to help you, I have a patient found naked in her bathroom by her roommate because of hypoglycemia, never wants that to happen again. She will not allow her blood sugars to get low enough to be at risk for that, which means her glycemic control has not been optimal for her diabetes management. Just to add to that, um, one of the 
important points that Betsy has already mentioned is this unawareness that you can get with repeated episodes. And so I've taken care of so many people with diabetes who see the threat of the hyperglycemia, but don't see the threat of the repeated episodes of low glucose. And I think that making certain people aware of just how important it is to avoid hypoglycemia um, can be difficult. So I think that that's another reason that we do focus on these episodes of hyperglycemia. We're treating hyperglycemia, but then you can kind of forget that hypoglycemia is at least as important to remember. Do you think that patients are aware that their medication if not used correctly, could lead to these events of hypoglycemia? Is, is that a conversation that's held enough? Do you think patients are aware of that? Or is it something that might unfortunately catch them by surprise at times? Well, I think whenever you prescribe a drug that lowers blood sugar, you have to prepare your patient for the fact that they might get hypoglycemic. But diabetes is a disease that people live with for decades. And after a while, doctors may not think about discussing these side effects because we're focusing so much on making sure the blood sugars aren't too high. So I think that it can be forgotten. So a lot of times when we talk about treatment, we oftentimes in, in this space, we hear the phrase time and range. What exactly are we talking about? And I wanted to go back to something that was said earlier that it might not always be the same for every patient. So how do we consider what the range parameters need to be? Time and range is really thinking about the amount of time that a patient's glucoses are within a goal range. And we started to think about this with continuous glucose monitoring because with the continuous glucose monitoring, oftentimes people are having their extracellular fluid glucose monitored every five minutes or more often than that. And so you end up with a huge number of glucose values and how you make sense of all of that is one of the ways is to look at the proportion of the day or how many minutes or hours of the day you're in your goal range. And so you can set that range kind of anywhere you want, but I think that the standard range that is often set is between a blood glucose of 70 and 180 is you know, one way to set that time and range. For other people in other situations, you might set something different. So for example, pregnant women might have a different goal range and then for patients where we want to set a higher range because there's at such high risk of hypoglycemia or other reasons to have less intensive control, we might set a higher uh, goal range. Exactly. And now that we finally have data that will correlate time and range with expected A1C measurement, A1C being the endpoint that we use to determine if our therapy is lowering the risk of developing the microvascular complications, we know if people are 60, 70% in range, they probably are going to have a pretty good A1C. Is there anything that can be done to address the or decrease the severity or frequency of hypoglycemia? There are many, many things that we can do. And um, I think that, you know, one of the first is to make sure that patients and clinicians are aware of hypoglycemia as a problem and then also what factors can contribute to it recognizing the risk factors. But then in terms of how to prevent hypoglycemia, you know, trying to optimize self-management, education about it is important. We can decrease the intensity of glycemic control, decrease the complexity of people's regimens. We can try to eliminate or substitute out medications that are uh, known to increase the risk of hypoglycemia. And then, you know, the continuous glucose monitoring is a way that 
with added information, especially about trends in glucose, can help patients do something about potential hypoglycemia before it happens. Yeah, all of those things are so important and time-consuming to do. So we often bring in our educators and take a lot of education to do that. I think the other thing that helps patients is to know how to best treat hypoglycemia, especially because when they get symptoms, they feel like eating. And I've had more than one patient tell me they want to pull the chair up to the refrigerator and eat everything in the refrigerator, which obviously they don't need to do. The rule of thumb is 15 grams of carb, wait 15 minutes, check your blood sugar, and if it hasn't come up, to go ahead with another 15 grams of carb. And that's a standard way. 15 grams is not very much. And if you end up treating a low glucose with 30 grams, 45 grams of carb, you're going to end up with severe hyperglycemia later. And people end up having this ping-ponging effect from low to high blood sugars throughout their day. And sometimes the best way to change that is to get rid of the low values first. So now that we're talking about treatment, what are some of the traditional ways that we treat hypoglycemia? And what are some of the newer treatments that you're seeing? So really, the traditional treatments are what Betsy has already mentioned, which is oral forms of carbohydrates. Of course, you can give that IV, for example, in the hospital setting if people can't have oral intake. But then, of course, in emergencies, we've always prescribed and recommended and educated patients about glucagon. And so when patients can't take PO because they're throwing up or they're unconscious, then you need to have a way to bring up their glucose different way. So we'll prescribe emergency kits. And I think the newest things um, with glucagon are really the different formulations. And so there's a dry nasal powder that Dr. Sequist has experience with and has just become available recently. And then also glucagon in the traditional emergency kits can be difficult to use because it comes in a powder in a vial and then this syringe of diluting agent and it takes a little bit of doing and to be able to even get the glucagon ready for injection. And so it now comes in a pre-filled syringe as well as a pen auto-injector. So there's some different ways to deliver the glucagon to make it easier um, on people in emergency situations. And of course, educating both the patient as well as most importantly, people that they live with um, is so important in terms of using glucagon. Yeah, the new formulations have been really helpful because they are so much easier to use. They also have a better shelf life and they don't need to be refrigerated. It's tough for people who like to go camping, for instance, and how do you keep your emergency glucagon kit cold throughout that time? And if you don't have to worry about that and you can carry your nasal powder or your pre-filled injectable glucagon at room temperature, it's much better. One of the other things to think about is, of course, we think about hypoglycemia in hospitalized patients quite a bit. How do we minimize hypoglycemia or deal with hypoglycemia in the hospital? I think there are a number of different groups across the country and around the world who are trying to develop clinical prediction models. So trying to predict who is going to get hypoglycemic in the hospital setting is one way to go about it, to place a red flag on which patients we should be watching more closely in the inpatient setting. But then also there are a number of established ways and kind of proven ways to minimize hypoglycemia in the inpatient setting. One is, you know, hospital-wide education, monitoring hypoglycemic events and patients who are getting them, daily review of the events, enrollment in different benchmarking programs. So for example, the Society for Hospital Medicine Glucometrics benchmarking program, so that you can see how you compare to other institutions that are enrolled in the program. 
both in terms of your glucometrics as well as the process. So are you dealing with hypoglycemia in a process that makes sense? So repeating finger sticks and notifying providers, doing something about it, and having an automatic order in the electronic medical record for a hypoglycemia protocol. So those are all important measures. But one of the other things I wanted to mention is that in this pandemic environment, uh, the FDA had some conversations with the different manufacturers of continuous glucose monitors and lifted the restriction on CGM in the hospital setting back in the first part of April of 2020. So even though they haven't officially approved it, they lifted the restrictions. So the, the use of CGM in the hospital has become a bit more widespread. And I think it's actually increased the opportunity for people to study how it's being used and, and how best to use it, who to use it in, and um, how to integrate it possibly into electronic medical record systems. Um, I think it's really provided huge opportunities for testing it out, quality improvement initiatives, research collaborations. And so hopefully we'll have more information down the line on the use of CGM in the hospital setting. We've also been talking about continuous glucose monitoring, and I'm sure that there's a role for that here. Can you talk a little bit about how CGM is being used in the treatment of hypoglycemia? And then I'm going to have a follow-up question. That might be a little bit harder to answer. I'm not sure. But how many should be using it? And can everybody get the access to it and afford it in the way that we wish that they could? Continuous glucose monitors have been shown to reduce hypoglycemia risk in every study that I'm aware of, no matter what the regimen of treatment the patients were getting, in multiple daily injections, different forms of pumps, adding the CGM substantially reduces the risk of hypoglycemia. So I think they have a hugely important role in many, many patients who are at risk for hypoglycemia. And I put most patients with type 1 diabetes into that group. But patients with type 2 diabetes have been shown to benefit as well. In my practice, I really encourage people to use them. I would completely agree. And I think that access, of course, can be an issue. And so here in Colorado, we are not able to have continuous glucose monitoring covered in the Medicaid program. So we have many patients who we think really need to have continuous glucose monitoring, but can't have access to it because of no coverage. And so I think that is really a big issue, especially for these new diabetes technologies is the access issue. And um, not everyone who needs them are able to get them. There is one additional thing I, I wanted to mention, and this is separate from continuous glucose monitoring, and that was just the issue of asking the questions about hypoglycemia. So the Endocrine Society has put together that hypoglycemia prevention initiative and has a clinical decision support tool that I think has some really, really great questions that people can consider asking you know, during a visit to parse out whether or not people are having hypoglycemia, when are they having it, why are they having it, and what can we do about it? Really important to emphasize so, so the clinicians really put that into their conversation with their patients every single visit. One other follow-up question I have for the both of you is with some of the advancements that we're seeing, whether it's through technology or through some of these new formulations, in your experience, have you been finding that patients have been able to keep up with it, that they're able to use the devices, be able to adhere to their regiments in the way that they're supposed to? 
that's always a challenge. Something new is always hard to do. Something new that requires a patient to be very engaged with it is even harder. You can't just prescribe a continuous glucose monitor. You have to set it up for a patient. Talk about the advantages of it. Talk about what they'll have to do in order to do it. It probably takes me several visits to really get someone who's a little reluctant to do it. And I don't give up. Some people, it's after 10 years. And they're like, you're right. I really need it. And then when they get it, they absolutely need the support. I don't think you give it to them and send them out and see them see you next year. You need your educator or someone within your team to see them within a couple of weeks so that they know what to do with that information on a daily basis. It really is a process. But even then, it's hard to maintain this, especially given the expense. I think that one of the misconceptions is that technology will solve problems by themselves. And so one of the examples of this was early on when insulin pump technology was available and we would often get referrals for patients with elevated A1Cs from providers out in the community who felt that with the addition of an insulin pump, we can solve this person's problems. But it's kind of the same thing with continuous glucose monitors where after finally convincing you know, a patient that you feel could be helped by continuous glucose monitoring, just placing the continuous glucose monitor itself is really not going to necessarily help anything unless you are able to go through and help people figure out what the information means, help them access it, help them troubleshoot. It's really not a one-time discussion. It's, it's a discussion over time, as Stephanie mentioned. As we're seeing so many rapid advancements in the treatment, whether it's these new formulations or devices, whatever it is, what about the future? Is there anything that you see five years from now or or 10 years from now that might bring even more elements to this field that could be game changers? For our patients in the United States who have resources, the idea of the hybrid closed loop pumps, which really allow the sensor and the pump to work together so that the blood sugar always remains within the target range, it's phenomenal. And I think they're only going to get better going forward. And I'm very excited about that future and think the technology is incredibly important. But the rest of the world do not have the resources that we have. And that's going to be a problem. And many people in our country do not have access to this kind of technology. And so we're going to have to do something to figure out how to provide it to people and make it more accessible. I would completely agree. I think that the hybrid closed loop systems and maybe the completely closed loop systems are things that we'll see in the future. Um, One of the other areas of really exciting research is the smart insulins. So right now, we're really limited in our insulin dosing by the fact that if you give too much insulin, then a patient will become hypoglycemic. But there's a lot of research going on on smart insulins that work to lower glucose when your glucose is elevated, but then when your glucose is not elevated, then the insulin is not active. And so I think that that is very promising, still a bit in the future, but I think that, who knows, maybe 10 years down the road, we might see some available, or at least being tested. Well, thanks for bringing that up. I agree. That is just so interesting. When I've looked at data from some of that work, and it it just is amazing that the insulin will work when its hyperglycemia is present and then turn off in the blood. Really very exciting. Super fascinating. And also fascinating was just this conversation that we, we got to have. I wanted to thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and being a part of this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to take that quick survey to get your free insulin pin. 
Again, you can find the link to that survey in the description of this episode on endocrine.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. As a clinical endocrinologist, are you curious about how recent research may impact your clinical practice? Do you struggle to dissect recent publications or connect the literature to patient care? My name is Chase Hendrickson, and I host Endocrine Feedback Loop, a monthly journal club podcast focused on reviewing recent articles published in the Society's clinical journals. Each month, I'm joined by an endocrine educator and a guest expert to perform an in-depth analysis of an important article and to understand how it advances the field and informs our clinical practice. This podcast is an Endocrine Society members-only benefit and can be accessed under the journals header on endocrine.org. Find out more about the podcast and becoming a member there. I think you'll benefit from our discussions and hope you'll join us as we learn together as a part of Endocrine Feedback Loop. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.